Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. Exodus, the third chapter, good to be with you today, good to worship the Lord with you. If I do not know you, my name is John, a pastor here at the Village. Glad to have you join us today. Exodus chapter 3. If you need a Bible, I just want to say, because I forget often, if you need a Bible, there are some that should be on the table back there. Uh, If you need a Bible, please take it. If you know somebody who needs a Bible, please take and give them one. Uh, We want to make sure that people have Bibles. People need the Word of God. I've been paying attention to the news a little bit more than I used to, and man, we're a wreck. Humanity's a wreck. The world's a wreck. Everything's a wreck. And the only solution is found between the covers of these books through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So please, give people the Bible. Give them a copy of God's Word. Exodus chapter 3, written as a reminder, the book of Exodus, a reminder to God's people forever of how God delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. Exodus is a book demonstrating the glory and power of God. From the beginning to the end, we see God's glory and God's power on display. We are journeying through, at this point now, very slowly, this is our third week in chapter three, and we've got another week ahead of us next week, because we're not going to get through all of chapter three today, journeying through it slowly, looking at how God interacts with and is God over the people of Israel, while understanding that God is interacting with us and is God over us in the same way. So we are looking for how does their life relate to us today. Moses is the author and one of the main characters. I brought this up the first week. I've mentioned it a few times. I want to make sure that I kind of keep it out in front uh, because in my own life and here at the village and the reality of the Bible as a whole is that the Bible is not a storybook. There are stories in it, but it's not a storybook. The Bible is telling us news from God. It is a narrative. It is account of God's dealings and interactions with man. It is a historical narrative at this point, specifically in Exodus. We are reading history of people that lived. We are reading the account of their life. Just as if you're a student in school, I know that school is over for most in the world right now. We're thankful that summer is here, but just as if you were to pick up a history book about some ancient civilization or even about our own country, we are reading the history of God's people. And if you are here today with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are here today as God's people reading a historical account of your ancestry in Christ. Because Moses is the author and one of the main characters, it is not only a historical narrative, it is also an autobiographical historical narrative, writing Moses about his own life, his encounters and experiences and dealings with God, which we can find great hope and great comfort and great confidence in our relationship with God as we observe Moses' relationship with God. Brief background to catch us up to where we will be today, Exodus 3. Verse 16, Moses is Hebrew-born. Moses is of the Hebrew people. He is an Israelite. He is Hebrew-born, Egyptian-raised, now a fugitive from Egypt because he killed an Egyptian and Pharaoh wants him dead. So Moses is now on the run, 
living life as an exile in the land of Midian where he is tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. To this point in our story, Moses has grown, killed the Egyptian, departed from Egypt, living in Midian, Midian, tending the flock of his father, Jethro. He has led his flock. It happens at the start of chapter 3. He has led the flock to the west side of the wilderness. That is the Bible telling us he led them far away. The west side, the far side, he led them away. And he is at a mountain called Horeb. You can see it right there in the first two verses of Exodus chapter 3. He is tending the flock in a mountain called Horeb, and he encountered a bush that burned but was not consumed. And God spoke to Moses out of the midst of the fire. This is where we find ourselves still. We are on that setting still. What is God saying to Moses? God is saying that he's heard his people crying. He's going to deliver them from their bondage in Egypt. God is sending Moses to Pharaoh, but Moses is afraid to go to Pharaoh because of killing the Egyptian, and Pharaoh wants him dead. God strengthens Moses. And man, I don't know who might need strength today, but in verse 10... Verse 12, God strengthens Moses with, but I will be with you. Moses then asks God for his name, and God gives it. What is your name? Who will I tell them has sent me? He says, I am who I am. We looked last week at how we could have read in our page in the Bible, they could have interpreted that, I am, I I, I am, I have been, and I will be, all that I am, I have been, and I will be. All of what God is at this point is all of who he has ever been, and it is all of who he will ever be. He is unchanging. We looked at the names of God last week because we see God, Lord God, Lord the God of. So we broke those down a little bit, and if your Bible has Lord God, Lord in all capitals, but O-R-D slightly smaller, if that's how your Bible has the word Lord, that is how they have translated the ancient name of God as given by God to Moses at the burning bush, Jehovah, Yahweh. That is the the proper, the name proper of the Lord our God. He says, you can see right there in verse 15, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Moses asked for God's name, God gives it to him, and then God begins revealing more of his plan to deliver the Hebrew people, a plan which only at a small glimpse so far there between verse 6 and verse 8, 9, 10, only in a small glimpse so far have we seen a deliverance that will include delivering them, verse 8, out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now this is important, out of the hand of the Egyptians in verse 8, but then look at also what he says. Verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Then look down in verse 11, out of Egypt. Not just set free from their bondage by the Egyptians, set free from their affliction and then out from among them. You're right to think about God saying to us in the New Testament, come out from among them and be separate Deliverance will include delivering them out of the hand of the Egyptians, which means bringing them out of Egypt, and Moses will lead them. But as we have seen here quickly in verse 8, it is God who will deliver. Moses is not the deliverer. 
He is the agent that God uses to deliver his people. God is doing the delivering. We'll include those things, and it will include, verse 8, the second half, bringing them, it says, to a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. Land that, as we read this account and as God spoke with Moses, land that is currently in the possession of other people that are not the Israelites. The land that God is giving them is land in the possession of other nations. And so, still at the burning bush, Moses, still with his sandals off, Moses, still with his face hid from looking at the bush and God, listens as God continues. Verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the land of affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we come before you in this time, only a couple verses in your word this morning, but Father, much for us to learn from. And so I pray that as we examine the scripture, as we look into the all-perfect word of God, Father, that you would teach us, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge and convict us. I pray, God, that your word would prevail upon the ears, the hearts, the minds, the lives of those gathered here. Father, that when we leave, your word might prevail upon the world around us that is in desperate need. Father, I pray that you would speak to me. I pray that you would further solidify the great truths and the great things that I have learned and studied this week, Father, that you would speak to me as you speak through me. Father, I pray today that as your word is proclaimed, I pray that you would humble the sinner to repentance. I pray that holiness would be promoted among your people, and I pray that Christ, the Savior, would be exalted. It is in his name. Amen. I titled the sermon right there out of verse 17, I will bring you up. I also circled those words because they follow God saying, and I promise that I will bring you up. I always pay attention to God saying, I promise, because when God promises, he never fails. God's promises are always going to come to fruition. God is going to make good on his promises. When he says, I promise that I will bring you up, those are good words. I will bring you up. God is revealing more of his plan and begins giving Moses instructions as to the work that Moses is now to go and do back with the Hebrews in Pharaoh's courts, in Egypt, in being used by God to lead the people of Israel out. Exodus verse, chapter 3, verse 16 starts, Go and. This is God giving him the specifics. Moses has said, Who am I that I should go? God says, I will be with you. That's who you are. You're mine, and I will be with you. That's why you should go. And then Moses says, Well, what is your name? I am is my name. Jehovah is my name. Any other questions at this point, or do you want to listen to me speak now? Uh, I'm, I'm done for now. Go ahead and I'll listen. So God now is giving him his assignment. Moses, you know my name. I'm going to be with you here now is what you are to do. Go and. We're going to deal with 
go and in two separate points. First, we probably have it in our minds that when Moses returned to Egypt, that he just like, doors open into Pharaoh's court, uh, just to let you know, I'm here and you're going to let my people go, says God, through me to you, so if that could just happen, that'd be great. Because we watch too many movies, that is not what happens. Go and gather the elders of Israel. This is a side note, because we as the, at the Village Church, we believe that God ordains and has ordained for the church to have shepherds over the church. We believe here in a plurality of elders or pastors, and we are in a season now praying over a man to potentially be an elder within our church alongside of me. We're praying for other men to be raised up. So I don't want there to be confusion between that process and what's happening right here. So a brief explanation. When Moses is told by God gather the elders of Israel. Is that like the pastors? Is that the the shepherds? Who are these elders? That is, for us to understand, the chiefs of tribes, the leaders of clans, the heads of homes. This would be like me saying, I need all of the men. I know that in our day and age we don't like this, and YouTube will probably censor our video right off because I'm being Christian and not worldly, but... I know we don't like these things. It would be like me saying, I need all of the men that are heads of families to step outside while we have a discussion. That's the equivalent of what's happening here. Like, we don't, we don't live in a patriarchal society. The people of Israel were patriarchal. I just said a naughty word. YouTube probably already took the video down. Ask me how much I care. The Hebrew people are a patriarchal society. So their families... Their clans and their tribes are led by whoever the oldest man of the family is. He's respected. He's lived much life. He's got wisdom. This is the ancient people of Israel who are a tribal people. This is not the New Testament church office of pastor, elder, overseer, shepherd. This is still those who have influence over others. I recognize that in my role as a pastor, I'm not... I'm not devoid of influence. I pray that I use that influence well and for the glory of God. In the New Testament, elder and pastor are synonymous. They are linked to the idea of a shepherd. In the Old Testament, with the Hebrew people, elder is older. It is a common conception in the church that if you are a pastor or if you are an elder, you are older because age comes with wisdom and we want our pastors to be wise, right? Yes, Yes, we do want them to be wise. But throughout all of the scripture, we can never see where God gives an age requirement for the elders of a church. He never gives an age requirement for a pastor, for an overseer, for a bishop. He gives qualifications, and we can draw that several who have been pastors and who will be pastors are men who are older, but we must ask this question. They need to be older because if they're older, they're wiser. That's slippery away from scripture because I ask you, Where does wisdom come from? Wisdom. The Bible says twice in Proverbs 1-7 and Proverbs 9-10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I do not consider myself a wise man, but I do believe that through the Spirit of God and through living according to his word, I do believe that God is able to give young men wisdom beyond their years. Is it Maybe more ideal if a pastor is older? Maybe, yeah. 
And does that older pastor have a relationship with God, or is he just a wise man because he's older and we're making him a pastor? So I want us to just be aware that when we talk about elder, we're not talking about necessarily pastor. We're not talking about pastor all in the Old Testament. When we talk about pastor in the New Testament as a village church, man, I pray for pastors of all ages, to be completely honest with you. I want elders over the flock of God's people, and this is my desire, and I take that to the Lord and surrender it to him, but I'm wild enough to say that I want elders in their 20s and elders in their 80s. And I want everything in between, because then I know that God's people are being cared for by people who understand and relate to the position and the situation that you're in. I just think that's beautiful. I think it's God's design, and I pray for his will in that. I pray that he raises up elders for us that are shepherds that lead us diligently in his word. James 1 verse 5 says, if you lack wisdom, ask God, not when you pass your 55th birthday, you will all of a sudden be wise. Wisdom does come with age in our day, but wisdom from God comes from the fear and reverence and worship of God and drawing near unto him. Side tangent over. Consider what is actually being said here besides the specifics of who God has called Moses to go to. I want you to consider that when he says to him, go and gather the elders of Israel together, God is effectively saying, Moses, go to the people who you were in bondage with. That's probably worth writing down. Go to the people who you were in bondage with. He doesn't say, go to your home, go to your mom and your dad, go to your best friend. He's sending him to a group of people, the elders of Israel. They're in bondage still. Moses, Go to the people who you are in bondage with. Go, gather the elders, and say. Very important. Notice, God does not hear in Exodus, nor does Moses account in his writing that God let him make up what he said based on his thought or his feeling about what God said. I'm going to say that again slower because that's really important for us to understand. God did not allow Moses to make up what he said based on Moses' own thought or feeling about what God said. God gave Moses what to say. This is important. If you're taking notes, I hope you are, you want to write this down. God gives Moses the message to speak. Moses doesn't go to the Israelites and make up, hey, I was in the wilderness and a bush was on fire, and I think what God was saying to me was this. I feel that based on what God said, what we need to do is this. Moses goes and Moses says, God appeared to me and said, Pastor, why are you drawing that point out? Because a lot of people today want to base what God says off of their feelings and their thought, and we do not base what God says on our feelings and our thought. We base what we say because of what God has said. Very dangerous for us to realize. I think, I think that what the Bible means, I, I feel that this scripture is saying this, Remember that your mind is broken and your heart is broken and given the opportunity, it will flee from God and the truth of God's word. We need God's word and God's word 
only. God gives Moses the word to say. And what, what did he say to Moses? He says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. First, the Lord, the God of your fathers, appeared to me. Second point to not saying what we feel or think is that we say what God tells us to say based on God's authority for us to say it. We say what God tells us to say based on God's authority to tell us to say it. The Lord, the God of your fathers, appeared to me. Moses was not speaking of his own. He was speaking on God's authority to the elders of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, appeared to me. I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Interesting, I took note of this. Moses first recorded simply in Exodus 2, verse 25, that God had seen. God heard their groanings, remembered his covenant, heard their groanings, saw them, knew them. In Exodus 3, verse 7, Moses records God is saying to him, I have seen, and now God here is saying to Moses, go tell my people I have seen them. God wants his people to know that in their suffering, he has not turned a blind eye to them. God wants his people to know that God has not turned a blind eye to them in their suffering. And how often as we go through life and as we suffer in various afflictions, as we will, do we allow those afflictions to cloud our understanding of God and we think that he is not listening, that he is not there. We've already dwelt uh, pretty lengthily on this point with the children of Israel, God has seen them. God knows their suffering, sees their afflictions, heard their cry, remembered his covenant. Now God is saying to Moses, go and tell my people that I have observed them. I've not been too busy to know what they've been going through. He says, I, the Lord, the God of your fathers, appeared to you, Moses. I have observed, tell the people in Israel, I have, the people of Israel and Egypt, I have observed what has been done to them. So he knows the afflictions, he knows the trial, he knows where they've come to. Look what else he says. And I promise, the start of verse 17, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. I will bring you up out of the affliction in Egypt to the land of. We're going to dwell here for just a little bit. To the land of what land and who are these people? I said at the beginning in the introduction to this message, the, the land that God is leading them to is currently occupied by other people. So how's this going to work when maybe a million or a million plus people of Israel are led out of Egypt and they come to the land that God swore to their fathers and they, we're just here for our land. That never goes well anywhere. Like, you go home and move a property stake and tell your neighbor, I'm just taking what's mine, I'm just here for my land. Like, that's not going to go well. <clears throat> I promise that I will bring you up out of affliction in the land, in Egypt, to the land of. Just turn back with me to Genesis chapter 12. Keep your spot in Exodus, we'll be back there eventually, but first we're going to look at more historical narrative about this land. 
Genesis chapter 12, the fifth, fifth verse, Genesis 12, 5. God has called Abram out of the land of Ur of the Chaldees. Joshua says, God called him from among his fathers across the river where they worshipped other gods, Joshua chapter 24. He's called him, go from your people to the land I will show you. I'll make a great nation of you. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you and dishonor you. And all the families in the world should be blessed because of you. So Abram went as the Lord told him. Verse 5. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So we have land that God has promised to Abram. It's not the promised land. Just, just trying to get to the promised land. There's really no such thing as the promised land. It is the promised land. It is land that God promised to Abram and to his descendants. I am not going to go off into many thousands of years of history about the land of Israel and Israel being a nation today, but I probably will some point in time. God promises this land, and you can read about the division of this land as they conquest in Joshua and come into, and what the Bible says is the fourth generation. God is giving this land. The promised land here is given to Abram, then it's given to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, and then it's given to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. Turn over to chapter 15. You can look at it as I give you a summary in verses 12 through 17, 18. God restates this promise to Abraham after he tells him, you can see it, in verse 14 of his offspring's future affliction. Abraham, this land is yours, but know for certain that your people, your offspring, they will be afflicted for 400 years. How they will come out of that affliction with great possessions, verse 14, they will come out with great possessions. How Abram, Abraham will die in peace. He will not see any of this. He will die in peace and be collected to God at a good old age, verse 15 says. Verse 16, and your generation, your offspring will turn, return here in the fourth generation. God says, verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates. He goes on and lists some familiar names from the passage in Exodus. God gives this land. I, I want to draw your attention to the fact that God does not say, I will give. God is saying, and we can effectively read, I have given. This is a great reminder for us in a day where Times are evil, and days are dark, and what's going to happen? And here is 
two nations that uh, the whole world is watching what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and what's going to happen over there as they jockey for position and who even really knows what Russia is doing. They're demonstrating God's prophecy. Thank you, Lord. This is a good reminder for us to remember the earth, physical, proper, the land upon which we stand right now. We don't think like this enough. The earth is the Lord's. Psalm says, and the fullness thereof. And so God can say to Abram, I give this land to your offspring forever. And no one can tell me not to because it's mine. No one can say, well, I object because it's mine to give. I give to whom I will give. So he gives Abraham this land. I give this land to your offspring. Interesting that Psalm 24 and 1 Corinthians 10, 26 both have that statement, the earth is the Lord's. As we watch nations jockey against nation, and as I promise you, we're not seeing a cessation to hostilities, expect them all to get worse and expect land to become even more central to the conversations that are happening on the global stage We have confidence at that point to say, doesn't matter, the earth is the Lord's. And when God wraps up all of time, he will purge all the evil thought and intent of man's heart from the face of this earth that he created. To your offspring, I give this land. But back in Exodus, you don't have to turn there just yet, you can actually flip over to chapter 10, Genesis chapter 10. It says, Go and tell them I will bring them up out of Egypt to the land of. Well, now we know what the land is. It's the promised land from the river in Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. It's a broad land. It's a a long land. It's the promised land to Abraham. Remember, this is important from our first sermon in this series, how God makes promises with man. This is an important one. The first one that was made was enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. I will put enmity, God said. He has. Later in the Bible, as we read, God will say in 2 Samuel, I believe it's chapter 7, and I believe it's verses 12 through 14, but you can check me if you want. God says to David, I will establish your throne, and you will never have a lack of a man to sit on it, and then it gets eternal, and it gets priestly, as God says to David, I will establish the throne of your son forever. This is not Solomon. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we have a seed promise. Here we have a land promise, a place. There's there's redemption from this sin. There's enmity between the serpent and the woman's seed. Now there's a land promise in the future. There's going to be a king promise. I need you to understand in the broad spectrum of things that what God is showing us is the establishment of his kingdom on this earth. Long look, long picture. We're not talking just ancient Israel at this point. Long picture. We are looking at God establishing his kingdom with land, seed, and title. Man, nations have warred over those things for centuries. It's my land. That's my land. 
I'm in charge. No, I'm in charge. Land, seed, and title have been the cause of most of the greatest conflicts throughout human history. And here God has promised seed that will endure in the seed of the woman, enmity with the seed of the serpent. Here's a land, soon a throne, a king. Many other things we'll see. But first, who are these people in this land that God is going to give to the Israelites? There's people dwelling there. Genesis tells us they're descendants of Canaan. Look at Genesis chapter 10, verse 15. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemurites, and a lot of other ites that are involved here. But what did it say back in Exodus? To the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So we have synonymous things happening here. These are the sons of Canaan who, if we back up to Genesis chapter 10 verse 6, we see that Canaan is a son of Ham. If we've paid attention in Sunday school, we know that Ham is the son of Noah. You're like, Pastor, is this really important? You betcha. Flip back to Genesis chapter 9 verses 25 through 27. Canaan is a cursed man. The son of Ham, Canaan, is cursed. Why? Because Ham looked on the nakedness of his father, which is peculiar and mysterious. But after the ark, remember I mentioned the first sermon that not only did Adam have a fruit problem, so did Noah. And he got drunk coming off of the ark. The Bible says that Ham saw the nakedness of his father. There's a whole lot that could be wrapped up in that. Suffice it for us to say, Ham did not respect his father. He dishonored his father. And through that dishonoring, Noah says, verse 25, uh, Genesis 9, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. God has promised this land that is dwelled by these people to the Israelites. Who are these people? Genesis chapter 13 verse 7 tells us that these people, the Perizzites, were in the land. Somehow they're connected to the Canaanites, but it's obscure where they came from. Would you turn with me to Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter, Deuteronomy chapter seven. If you're really thankful for all this searching in the scripture, you can thank a yearly Bible reading plan. All of these references from, Genesis, from Deuteronomy chapter seven would have never been in this sermon if I didn't read Deuteronomy chapter seven during the week of preparing to teach this passage. Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you're not reading the Bible every day, I hope you find a way that works for you to read God's word, all of it, all the time, every day. God gives us more narrative, more commentary on who these people are. Look what he says, Genesis 7, or I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5. <clears throat> Moses talking to the people. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away, you probably want to underline those words, many nations before you, look at the names, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Paravites, the Hittites, and the Jebusites, look at their qualifications as nations. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, 
And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their Asherim and burn their carved images with fire. Look at verse 9 and 10. Know therefore that the Lord your God is that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Look at verse 10. And repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Look at verse 16. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give you, give to you. Your eye shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Down to verse 22. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them all at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But... The Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hands and you shall make their names perish from under heaven. Remember what, remember what Pharaoh was trying to do? Male infanticide of the people of Israel. I will annihilate them by killing all of their male babies three years and under. I will eliminate them from the face of... Remember the promise of God to Abraham? I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you, I will curse. No one shall be able to stand against you, the end of verse 24, until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God, and you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become, de- and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. Get an idea of who these people are that are filling the land currently? Promised to Israel. Do you understand who these people are now? They are enemies of God. They are enemies of God's people. And enemies of God's people will be removed from before him and from before his people. David said in Psalm chapter 68, verse 1, God shall arise, and his enemies shall be defeated, and those who hate him shall flee before him. It is a land promised to Abraham. It is a land currently occupied by these Nations that are enemies of God, the sons of Canaan, cursed by Noah, they're occupying it. God will drive them out. It is a land, Exodus says, flowing with milk and honey. 
The removal of God's enemies generates this statement. I'll bring you up out of Egypt to the land of these nations, a land flowing with milk and honey. Why? Milk and honey. How many people reading the Bible when you were younger, because I did until probably last year? That's an exaggeration. What does that actually mean? As kids were like, flowing with milk and honey. So like, were the streams milk? And where'd the honey come from? Like the dew, like flowing with milk and honey. And maybe I don't want to ever insult intelligence, but I want us to understand what the Bible is saying. Milk and honey is not referring to literal milk and honey, but it is referring to how and to what the people of Israel will possess when God gives them the land he has promised to them. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 11, you don't have to turn there, but Moses says to God, Moses says, God will give the land he promised, he says this, with great and good cities that you did not build, with houses full of all good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. They're going to walk into a land, you understand, prepared for them. Joshua chapter 24, verse 13, Moses said that God will do this. Joshua says, Joshua 24, 13, the leader after Moses, the Lord gave you a land on which you did not labor. Cities that you have not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. The land flowing with milk and honey is a land prepared for the people of Israel. But they aren't getting this land because of anything they did. Deuteronomy chapter 9, the sixth verse, it says, Know therefore, the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Nothing that the Israelites did earned them the inheritance they would receive. Someone else, you understand, did the work for the riches that the Israelites would receive in the promised land, the inheritance that God gave them. Next week, we're going to take a look at the omniscience of God. But it's worth noting today that all these promises from Abraham to the Hebrews in Egypt, starting actually from enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, all of these promises all begin from one place. God said, I will. All of them. None of these promises are generated by any one man saying any one thing. God simply shows up and says, I will. Now, how do we apply Exodus chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. I have three things for you, and you're probably going to write, want to write them down. As Moses was sent to a people that he was formerly in bondage with, if you didn't pick up on it when I said it the first time, so too are you sent to a people who you were formerly in bondage with. As God sent Moses to a people that he was formerly in bondage with, so too are you sent 
two people that you were formerly in bondage with. Consider, Moses knew the Israelites' bondage. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 tells us that Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He understood their affliction. In this room right now, there are those who were and there are those who are still in bondage in this life. All of us were born enslaved to sin just as the Hebrews are born enslaved to the Egyptians. Moses couldn't help being born a slave. He was born and his destiny at his birth was actually, well, his destiny is a different word, so let's be careful with the words that we use. The fleshly side of our understanding of Moses at his birth, he should have been thrown into a river because his parents were slaves to the Egyptians, which means that he was born a slave to the Egyptians. He understood their affliction. Unable to escape, needing deliverance, Paul called this body that we are born into, Romans 7.24, a body of death. Just as Moses is born enslaved in Egypt, we are born enslaved in sin. Are you in bondage to sin? And I'm not talking necessarily about ongoing sin. We've talked a bit about ongoing sin and original sin. I'm talking about original sin. Have you placed your faith and hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you repented of sin to be set free that you may now wage war on sin that is ongoing? The Lord Jesus Christ died to defeat sin in your life. And the Lord God calls you to be holy as he is holy. So the recipe and the ingredients are all there for us to not sin. But have you been set free from the wage of sin that is death? Can you say, I have repented of sin. I am fighting the good fight in my life against sin. But I have been set free from its eternal weight, its eternal judgment. Are you free? There's freedom through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we gather every Sunday. If you have been set free from sin, if you have thrown your faith, your confidence, your hope, your trust on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are sent to people still in bondage. We don't just get to be a part of a club where we're all free. Praise the Lord, we're all going to heaven someday. I hope everyone in here can say that. I have hope and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you have that. We're not sent to one another. We're given to one another. We're sent to the people that God called us out of bondage from. Are you going to them? That's where God has sent you. That is the mission field of your life. I don't know who I should share the gospel with. People you used to sin with is a good place to start. It's a hard place, but it's a good place to start. Maybe it's not the specifics of actual people, but maybe it's people like you used to be. You're called to go to people in bondage. As Moses was sent to a people that he was formerly in bondage with, so too are we sent to people that we were formerly in bondage with. One. Two. As Moses was sent with a message from God to speak the words that God gave him, so too are we sent to speak the words that God gives us. The message is not our own. We speak the message that God gave us. We do not speak on our own authority. We speak on God's authority. The Lord Jesus said, Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Mark 16, 15, preach the gospel. We don't preach or speak a message that is what people want to hear. I was able to address the Byron Baccalaureate the other night. Eight seniors from Byron High School, praise God, and their families. And I said to them, I hope that tonight motivates and inspires you, but there's a likelihood that our ideas of motivation and inspiration are not the same in the end. People need to see and understand their sin. People don't need you to give permission to their sin. They need to know that they are lost in sin. They need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ because the Bible tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The lost need us sharing the message that God has called us to speak. We do not speak words based on our thoughts or our feelings. The message that you share is not up to you or what you think about it. If you think something other about what God has said to you, don't share anything with anyone. Get on your knees before God and be brought into alignment with the truth of his word and speak the truth that he has given you and nothing else. We speak God's words as he has told us to speak them, not our thoughts or our feelings about them. As God's people, he has given us his message. We are to speak his words. Christ, teach them all I have commanded. Peter, whoever speaks is one speaking the very words of God. Listen, don't listen to a pastor who likes to or tries to come up with something new. I have brother pastors and colleagues that I've never met that I know, I guarantee this Sunday, they were trying to invent something that would catch the ears of people. And the Bible talks about those who tickle the ears of the people that listen to them. Don't listen to a pastor who tries to come up with something new. Talk to a, a pastor and listen to a pastor who declares something ancient. I'm not trying to give you a new word. I'm trying to bring to you the word that God has given to us. I'm trying to know it in my own life and understand it in my own life so that I can teach it to you and you can take it and understand it. Don't try to come up with something new. Don't try to be clever with your words. Speak. Speak well. Speak clearly. But speak the very words of God. It's why they're written down for us. It's political season. We're going to start hearing a lot about platforms. May our platform as Christians be the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God and nothing else. May you speak truth into the lives of people from the truth that God spoke into broken humanity. May you recount the rich stories of the Bible to people who are in utter darkness and lost. Don't talk about the news. It's a great conversation starter, but bring it up, address it, and move quickly to the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, pastor, is that all we're supposed to talk about? No, but with the lost, there's nothing else to talk about. We don't share anything with them, do you understand? Those who are dead in their sin are dead in their sin, and if God comes back right now, we're going to heaven and they're going to hell. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your breath. Don't waste your words. Be to the point, oh, it might cost me. Let it cost you. Sell your life dear for it. Are you speaking God's words? Are you in God's word enough to speak God's word? I would, Pastor, but I just don't know what to say. Shame on you. And shame on me. I'm always terrified that I will never have read enough of God's word in a moment. I'm always concerned. I don't, Lord, I don't know enough of it. I don't know enough of your word, God, and I must know more. Are you speaking God's words? Or are you speaking 
words that you've made up, words that you feel. Lastly, like the Israelites, someone else did the work for the riches that we will receive in the inheritance we get from God. You've had no hand, you've played no part in receiving anything from God. It was bought and paid for you. Now, hear me out. We're going to give an account. I don't want you to think that someone else did the work and so that means you just walk through life unfettered doing what you want to do and it doesn't matter. Not true. People who say they're saved and can do whatever they want have not believed the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have not been set free by the Holy Spirit of God making them new from the inside out. We will give an account. Hebrews 4.13 tells us, all are naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's you. That's me. If that's not enough, if you want to get really even more, in Matthew 25, Christ says that the accounting will involve all nations. No one escapes. All will give an account. They'll all be gathered before him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 that we will account for every careless word. Anybody want to Anybody want me to show my hand at which one thing punched me this week? Think about all the words you used. I did this, and it terrified me. You will give an account for every careless word. Man, I spoke so many of them. Not even thinking. Remember last week? We go to God in prayer, and we don't even think about who we're praying to. We don't even have in our mind the one who has existed for all of eternity, who holds my life and my very breath in this moment in his hand. No reverence when we go before God. And then we just use words. We don't even think about the words that we're using. How much conversation did you have this week where you used careless words for no reason whatsoever? You will give an account, I will give an account, all of the world will be gathered together before God and all will give an account for every careless word. Paul wrote to the Corinthians chapter 3 verses 12 through 15, our works, whether gold, silver, or precious stone, or wood, hay, and straw, will be exposed on the day of judgment by fire. And if it's burned up, you suffer loss, and if it passes through the fire, there's a reward. It says that for the one whose works are burned up, they will escape, but only as through fire. How many of you are laboring for worthless works because you're just thankful that you'll be saved on the day of judgment? I was terrified for us when I read this passage this week. I think that far too many of us might be laboring for worthless works instead of striving for gold, silver, and precious stones. We're just, ah, it's stones, it'll be burned up, but I'll be saved that should make you want to throw up on your shoes. I don't care what happens to my works when I stand before God. You may as well effectively say like one guy did in the story of, I hid it because I know what you are, I know who you are, and here you can have it back, it's yours. You worthless, wicked servant, God says to him. Man, I'm thankful that imperfect works will be burned up and people will be saved as through fire. 
I'm thankful for that. Why? Well, because I guarantee you I've messed something up here today. I've promised you from the beginning of this church and to some of you since even before that, don't worry, I'll mess up sooner or later. Imperfect works happen by us all the time, but that shouldn't be our goal just because we're saved. If your work survives, you gain a reward, but if it's burned up, eh, it's all right, it's burned up. No, you just told God that you didn't care how well you labored for him. Burn it up, Lord, I'm, I'm saved, I'm here now, burn it up. That's how you want to enter glory. Brothers and sisters, let us not labor lazily in works that will be burned up. May our words be carefully chosen. May our works be gold and silver and precious stone. May our lives reflect the holiness of God. May our lives reflect godliness. May we stand before him. I pray, stand there with me one day. May we stand before him and hear, well done. Well done. Good and faithful. Come in to the rest of the master. The Israelites did not work for the riches they received, and their works were evil. They still received. I can't reconcile everything for you. I can't reconcile how wicked people acted so wickedly and still received an inheritance from God. But I can understand how wicked people can be saved from their wickedness and turn back to it so frequently. We struggle with sin. Let us struggle away from sin. Christ died to make us free. May we remember, it's not our works that will gain us the inheritance that we receive with the people of God. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance. Nothing of our salvation, nothing of our entrance into heaven, nothing of the inheritance that we receive in the saints has ever once depended on you or I or what we've done. Our welcome into eternity, into heaven, as God's sons and his daughters, hangs entirely on the promise of God and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it always has. How often we've desired, like the Israelites back here, God says, I'll promise I'll bring you up out of the land of affliction, through the land of these other people, to a land flowing of milk and honey. Oh God, if you would just deliver us from this land to a land of milk and honey. Oh Father, if we could live in a land that we haven't had to toil for, if we could just be set free from our bond and have a life of ease. Now look at this beautiful connection and we'll close. We are right. When we think about the Lord bringing the Israelites up out of Egypt and into the promised land, a land prepared for them. We are right to remember the words of our Savior. I go and prepare a place for you. Exodus serves as a forever reminder to God's people of how God delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. Have you been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? Are you free through faith in Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.